The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 7 this morning. You'll notice when we turn to our New Covenant reading in Matthew that Matthew is going to quote uh, the largest portion of verses 1 and 2. I want to encourage you, though, whenever you read a quotation in the New Testament that talks about a prophecy being fulfilled, that you'll turn back and look at the broader context. The broader context here is that in chapter 8, the Lord through Isaiah has announced judgment and darkness and doom to be upon the northern tribes of Israel. And now in these words, he's announcing the promise of the coming light. Isaiah chapter 9, beginning at verse 1, the word of the Lord. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness, from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. The Gospel according to Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 12. We'll be reading through verse 16 this morning. The word of our God. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. For those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Please keep your place here in Matthew, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for our morning sermon. There is a petition from the Book of Common Prayer that resonates so deeply with me, it has become just a natural and common aspect of my own prayers to the Lord. I regularly pray like this, particularly one phrase of this in my own life. Lighten our darkness, 
we beseech thee, O Lord, and by thy great mercy defend us from all perils and dangers of this night, for the love of thy only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lighten our darkness. That is something I frequently ask the Lord to do. Uh, Metaphors about light and darkness, unsurprisingly enough, are the most common metaphors in every culture throughout the entire world. They they are pervasive to us. Uh, In the ancient Near East, darkness stood for disorder, danger, ignorance, sin, and grief. Correspondingly, light commonly stood for order, safety, knowledge, purity, and peace. And as you can see, those connotations are still very much with us. They haven't changed that much in thousands of years. I want to give you one more association to make, however, between light and darkness. In the struggle between light and darkness, the light wins. Now, on a physical level, this is really obvious to us. You know, when you walk into a room that's dark and you throw on the light switch, you don't have this long, protracted struggle. The light simply dispels the darkness. The light comes on, and the darkness disappears. In the moral realm, when we're thinking about knowledge, purity, and peace, there's actually commonly a great deal of struggle. Nevertheless, the metaphor still holds because of the grace of God and the work of the Holy Spirit through Jesus Christ. Light dispels the darkness, and beloved, the true light, has already come, and he has pitched his tent among us. He has died for our sins, he has risen from the dead, and he now sits enthroned on the throne of the entire universe from where he will come to judge the living and the dead. We, in fact, live in an age of great struggle between the light of God's kingdom and the remaining darkness that is in this world. In this present age, on this side of the second coming, there is still enough disorder, danger, ignorance, sin, and grief to at times completely overwhelm us. At times it can feel as though the darkness is actually winning out in our lives. So it's good and right for us to pray, Dear Lord, please lighten our darkness. And if that's true of us on this side of the empty tomb, How much more was it true of those who had yet to encounter Jesus Christ? What joy they must have experienced when they discovered that the true light was beginning to dawn, that the Lord's Christ had finally come. That's what this morning's passage is about. This morning we're going to look at the dawning of the true light under three headings. First, the theology of geography. Second, the fulfillment of prophecy, and third, the triumph of the true light. Let me give those to you again. First, the theology of geography. Second, the fulfillment of prophecy. And third, the triumph of the true light. Uh, Naturally enough, we're going to begin with the theology of geography. Look at verses 12 and 13 with me. Verses 12 and 13. Now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee 
And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, several months have actually transpired since Jesus submitted to John's baptism. Uh, John didn't want to baptize Jesus. He understood how incongruous it was. But Jesus had insisted that it was necessary to fulfill all righteousness. Then you read Matthew's gospel, it seems like these things happened like this. Right? Jesus gets baptized. He's driven out into the wilderness. He's tempted by Satan for 40 days and 40 nights. He overcomes that. And bam, we're at this passage where John is getting thrown into prison. Uh, it turns out, actually, though, that several months have transpired. Uh, we see, particularly from the Gospel of John, that John's ministry and Jesus' ministry are both going at the same time. And Jesus' ministry is swelling so dramatically that it soon begins to eclipse the ministry of John the Baptist. In fact, some of John's most loyal disciples seem to be a little bit disturbed that Jesus is fading, and Jesus' rise is causing John, as it were, to fade in significance. Yet faithful servant that John was, when his disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going to him. John says, look, are you jealous for me? You don't understand my purpose. He must increase. I must decrease. Or as actually I heard... um, a translation that was done into uh, one of the African languages, I think captures this idea really beautifully. He must rise out of the dawn, and I must set into the dust. Right? My time is passing. My whole purpose was to prepare his way. And I rejoice that his kingdom has come. Now, John has been thrown into prison for publicly criticizing Herod for his unlawful marriage to his brother's wife. When Jesus hears this news, he withdraws to Galilee. Now, White asked this question, why? I mean, Jesus wasn't a coward, and he wasn't afraid of conflict. That's absolutely clear. So why would the fact that John is being thrown into prison lead Jesus at that moment to decide this is the time to leave that area down in Judea to head up to Galilee? Well, perhaps we should pause for just a moment over the fact that John is being thrown into prison. You know, the last thing that we were told in Matthew's story is that Jesus was out there being tempted by Satan in the wilderness, and three times he overcame Satan. If we were writing the story, we might have imagined that it just moved from victory to victory, from power to power, from strength to strength. The great crowds would keep swelling, and people would simply coronate Jesus and make him king. But, of course, you know that is not God's plan That is not how the gospel works. The Lord's paradoxical plan is for Jesus to triumph over Satan, over sin, and over death through his own suffering and death on the cross. That is, Jesus would achieve his greatest victory by what externally appeared to be defeat. That the great forerunner of the Messiah would be cast into prison rather than celebrated by the world points us in this direction. In this present evil age, the Lord frequently advances his kingdom through the faithful suffering of his own people. Uh, That is so basic to God's plan that uh, Jesus himself is known as the suffering servant. There's a practical application for us here. 
Beloved, please don't imagine that whatever suffering you're experiencing right now somehow indicates that you are outside of God's will or indicates that somehow God's kingdom is having a difficulty in advancing against the darkness. If you're being faithful to Christ, your very suffering might be a sign that God is using you right now to advance his kingdom. That's how it works. As Jesus will tell us in the very next chapter, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The last of the prophets to be persecuted was John the Baptist, save Christ himself. John, after all, has been thrown into prison for preaching the truth. When Jesus hears this news, he withdraws into Galilee. Well, I've asked you why. Let, Let me give you four suggestions on why Jesus does this. Oh, I should say, um, once again, John actually gives us more information. And this this other information about what's actually going on in Jesus' life is helpful background. Um, Matthew actually organizes the gospel geographically, so he moves from north to south. John, when he gives us his gospel, organizes it primarily chronologically. You know, if you only had Matthew, you could only think that Jesus had one year of ministry. It's only because we have this uh, temporal organization in John that we realize that Jesus ministered for at least three years. And so... John, doesn't, uh, John tells us about Jesus' ministry in Judea that's been going on for um, several months anyway. He tells us about the conflict Jesus is having with the religious authorities in Judea. And then at this point, when Jesus is withdrawing to Galilee, John tells us that Jesus leads his disciples through Samaria. I think that's relevant as we think about the message of this story, because many Jews would avoid going through Samaria. They would take the other route, which is longer, to avoid the Samaritans. But as we go through uh, the Gospel of John, we see Jesus not only goes through Samaria, he ministers to them. We have that beautiful story of Jesus meeting this uh, really very uh, outwardly uh, recognized sinful woman at the well and ministering to her in love and in truth. And it wasn't just this woman. Uh, This woman goes into the city and tells them that the Messiah has come who told her everything about his own life, and the crowds swell, and they come out to meet with Jesus, and they plead with Jesus to stay with them. And after three days, this crowd tells the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. See, the background for the passage we're looking at this morning is John being thrown into prison, the the people, the official religious people in Jerusalem, not accepting Jesus, and yet Jesus ministering to those outcast Samaritans who, in fact, embrace his message and embrace him as the Christ. That'll become important in just a moment. Well, as I say, Jesus wasn't afraid of conflict, so why did he choose to withdraw to Galilee when John was arrested? Here's my four suggestions for you. First, Jesus may have simply uh, been avoiding a premature um, climax to his ministry. That is, he's uh, avoiding the type of conflict that's going to lead to him going to his death too quickly. Not because Jesus was afraid of dying. He came to die. 
But Jesus still had a great deal to teach the multitudes. And importantly, he needed to spend a lot of time with the disciples to prepare them to become the apostles who would become foundation stones in the church. So I think it's quite reasonable to think that Jesus realized his time had not yet come. And therefore he withdrew so that he would have more time to give training to his future apostles and time to teach to the masses before he would give his life for the life of the world. Uh, Second, I think it's very likely that Jesus was just self-consciously fulfilling this prophecy from Isaiah. Um, We're not told that here. But we do see that in other places in Jesus' life. Jesus knew the scriptures intimately. He knew what they said. And therefore, that was God's will for his life. And he's following out God's will by fulfilling scripture intentionally. Third, Christ's mission extended far beyond bringing the kingdom of God to Jerusalem. Now, you realize that for the religious leaders in Jerusalem, they were the center of the world. They were what mattered. But God cares about the whole world. Uh, God cares about the northern tribes of Israel. He cares about the Samaritans. He cares about the Gentiles. Here's an important tip. Now, I'm going to say this so much, you're going to get tired of me saying it. But I'm going to keep saying it because I want every one of you to get it. When you read any book, it's very helpful when you get to the end of the book that you read the rest of the book in light of where it ended up. That was the author's goal. So where is Matthew going with his account of the gospel? Matthew's account of the gospel does not end with Christ's death and resurrection. It ends with the Great Commission, where Jesus Christ, the risen and exalted Christ, will commission us to go to the Gentiles, that is, to the nations, to the ends of the earth, discipling them. And therefore, we ought to keep in mind that God's plan for his kingdom is much bigger than redeeming Jerusalem. It has to do with redeeming all the people on the face of the earth whom he has chosen in his son since before the foundation of the world. Therefore, it's not surprising that he would go to the Samaritans and then to Galilee of the Gentiles. As R.T. France puts it, Galilee is the place where the mission will be enthusiastically launched and developed and from which eventually, and after the conflict and rejection in Judea, the mission will be launched to reach all the nations. Uh, Keep that in mind. I think that will help you as you read the whole gospel. Fourth, Matthew tells us that leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. Now, it would have been natural for Jesus to return to his hometown in Nazareth. That doesn't surprise us. But he's drawing our attention to the fact, not simply Nazareth, but Zebulun and Naphtali. Why is he doing that? Well, these are northern tribes that had settled in that region, right? And they had settled around the the, the Sea of Galilee there. And they were also the very first tribes to be destroyed and taken into captivity when the Assyrians invaded. They had been wiped out, right? So that's a very important thing to realize, They were the very first people who were devastated and dragged off into the Assyrian captivity. The devastation of the north was so great that these tribes in popular lingo are known as the ten lost tribes of Israel. Do you know what Matthew's telling us? They weren't lost to God. God knew exactly who they were. And when God came and sent his son into the world to bring about the restoration of Israel, 
He actually included not just the remnant that was brought back out of the Babylonian captivity. He was going to restore all of Israel, gathering in these people who had been scattered, actually, as we read elsewhere, like in Hosea, outside of the land of Israel altogether. That was part of his plan, first to the Jews, then to the Samaritans, then to the ends of the earth. We should also realize that by choosing Capernaum, Jesus was choosing a very strategic location. Uh, Capernaum was by the sea. Capernaum was on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. It was the administrative center of the region. Uh, A major trade route, uh, the Via Marius, that's the way of the sea, ran from Damascus through Capernaum to the Mediterranean. And of course, the Sea of Galilee itself provided Jesus with easy access to the whole region by boat. That's the easiest way to get around in the ancient world. And so strategically, Jesus was choosing a place to set up his headquarters, as it were, for his ministry to evangelize the region in a place that you could not have picked uh, a choicer spot for him to do that. And that's not entirely surprising. Jesus, after all, is a lot wiser than we are. And as we're going to see, Lord willing, in the next couple of weeks, Jesus would also choose some of his closest disciples from this very land of Capernaum. So please keep in mind that this geography points us to the fact that Jesus was both wise in setting up his position, but also that Jesus came to regather and restore the entire nation of Israel, just as he came to extend that kingdom through Samaria to the Gentiles and even to the ends of the earth. Um, Just a little tip, sometimes it's helpful to actually look in the map in the back of your Bible. When you read these names of places, you you don't really know what they are. Go ahead and look them up. There can be a great deal of theology found in the geography of the Holy Land. Well, as we said, it is likely that, among other things, Jesus was self-consciously fulfilling the prophecy that we read this morning from Isaiah chapter 9. Look at verses 14 through 16 with me. Verses 14 through 16. Jesus had relocated to Nazareth and then to Capernaum, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. Now, Matthew Uh, places a great deal of emphasis throughout his gospel on the fact that Jesus is fulfilling scripture. And even before we get to the specific prophecy that's being fulfilled, this reminds us of two really important truths. First, the Lord has a plan. The Lord is executing his plan. And no one or nothing in all the universe can keep the Lord from carrying out his plan. It's not like Jesus just happened to do these things. It was all on God's foreordained plan that he promised long before. Promises made, promises kept. That's the way the Lord is. Second, all the promises of the Old Testament find their yes and amen in Jesus Christ. That is, Jesus is both the goal and the climax of the Old Testament. Those are two important truths about Christ fulfilling any prophecy. And yet, since this particular prophecy comes from the two verses of Isaiah chapter 9, 
verses that we read in our Old Covenant reading this morning, we ought to ask ourselves, remind ourselves, what exactly was the context in which this particular prophecy was originally given. Uh, I just really want to encourage you. It's so easy not to do that, right? But go back and look, because when the authors quote, they usually quote a verse or half a verse or a line, and they want you to have the broader context of what was going on. What was this prophet talking about when he was doing this? And if we just turn back the page a little bit to the immediately preceding verses in Isaiah chapter 8, we hear the Lord giving this stark announcement of judgment on the northern tribes of Israel. Indeed, the last words of chapter 8 strike an astonishingly ominous note. Isaiah writes this, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. When they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and against their God. Uh, I'm going to pause there for a minute, which I hate to do in the middle of reading something. So shame on me. But think back to the people of Israel. God miraculously delivers them out of Egypt through the Exodus. And they get out in the wilderness and they get hungry and thirsty and they start complaining against God. They're murmuring. They're doing it again. Right? And God says, when they get hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth, but behold distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's how chapter 8 ends. Beloved, sin has consequences. Adam's rebellion against God cast mankind into an estate of sin and misery. The rebellion of the northern tribes plunged them into a fresh experience of that sin and misery. But thankfully, God will not allow our sin mankind's rebellious no to God to have the last word. Our rebellious no to God is swallowed up by God's yes and amen in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And so Isaiah continues, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. And then Isaiah goes on to make clear, but he's not speaking of a what. You know, their situa- they had bad situations. They were hungry. Light came and they had comfort and peace. That is not what Isaiah says. Yes, eventually they'll have comfort and peace. But Isaiah is not talking about a light that is a what. He's talking about a light that is a who. Right? He goes on to say, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Do you see how important the original context of Isaiah is to understanding the good news that Matthew is announcing? This leads us to our third and central point this morning. For the sake of conciseness, 
I have called this the triumph of the true light. Uh, that's perfectly good. You're taking notes, the triumph of the true light. That's a perfectly good heading to put here. But it might actually be better for us to think of it in terms of John's words and the opening prologue of his own gospel. John writes, The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let those words sink into your heart. The light is shining in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Let me state the matter bluntly. It doesn't always feel that way, does it? It's always true, but it doesn't always feel that way. As I mentioned, in the ancient Near East, darkness stood for disorder, danger, ignorance, sin, and grief. Beloved, you will have times. You may be in such a time right now. You will have times in your life where the pain and grief that you are experiencing makes it feel like the darkness is winning. It makes it feel like light is being swallowed up by darkness. That's the reality of living in a broken world as finite and fallible sinners. In terms of a darkness of ignorance, oh, I must hate to say this, but realize we have an election coming up in about a month. Let me just say, none of you, none of you can look at the political ads that are hitting our television and think that shows us that knowledge and insight is overcoming the darkness of ignorance. It it just doesn't work. And how are we to weigh out the darkness in danger, the darkness of danger, against the light of peace when we turn on the evening news and hear that Putin is mobilizing another quarter of a million soldiers for his grossly immoral war in the Ukraine and that he's even threatening to use nuclear weapons? We might imagine that all of this remaining darkness in this present evil age makes it difficult to embrace the true light. Do you feel that way? Does the remaining darkness of this present evil age make it hard to embrace the true light? If we imagine that, we're entirely wrong. Recognizing the darkness of this present evil age that continues is not a hindrance at all to recognizing the true light and embracing and following him. It's paradoxically when we think we're already in the light. And we fail to realize that we are still in the darkness and we still participate in the darkness to the degree that we are not clinging to Jesus Christ. Two important truths. First, God's plan is to completely eradicate every last bit of darkness in the new heavens and the new earth. Notice, I didn't say now, I said in the new heavens and the new earth. Uh, This is what John is getting at when he describes the new Jerusalem in Revelation chapter 21. John writes, And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives its light. And its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. Now, it may turn out there is no night at all. But I don't think that's what John is getting at at all. He's not talking about day and night in terms of the 
the earth going around the sun. He's saying all those things we associate with darkness in terms of evil and corruption and pain and grief, they're all going to be gone and you will experience the smile of God's face forever. Beloved, that will be glorious. Exactly. Hallelujah. Praise God. Yet we're not there yet. That's the issue. We still live on this side of the Lord's second coming. In this present age, the primary work of the light of God's word and the light of Jesus Christ in his gospel has to do with reconciling people to God. And it has to do with building his church. And it has to do with us being transformed so that in the face of this present darkness, we can become reflective lights that point people to Jesus Christ. That's what's going on in this present age. Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. And we all, as Paul says, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, from one degree of glory to another. This, rather than an absence of suffering, is the work of the light of God in this present evil age. Jesus, after all, promises us this. You get those little promise boxes? You know, this one never makes it in. Jesus does promise, however, that in this world you will have tribulation. Jesus is not promising that suffering will go away. He's promising that he will use your suffering for the good of his people and for his own glory. And second, and please don't miss this point, um, this is the main point. This is the critical point that we must get. It's absolutely vital. Rather than the remaining darkness of the world making it hard for us to embrace the true light that is Jesus Christ, paradoxically, it is our refusal to acknowledge the darkness, that we are in darkness, and that apart from Jesus Christ, we ourselves participate in the darkness, which which puts up the greatest barriers to fully embracing Christ Jesus as our own Lord and Savior. Consider Galilee of the Gentiles. You know, originally, most of the people, when they read Isaiah, the Jews, before the coming of Christ, if you asked them what the darkness was, they would have said it's the Gentiles. We're being trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. That's the darkness. They learned to live with it. Turns out that the sun shone just as brightly in Galilee as it did in Jerusalem. That's not where the darkness comes from. It is true that Isaiah says in describing this region, but it is a place of distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish. That's where the people are dwelling. They are a people dwelling in darkness, even in the region and shadow of death. Yet as Michael Wilkins points out, very few people in Galilee can see this darkness or the shadow of death. The Galilee region to this day is one of the most beautiful areas in all of Palestine. The magnificent lake, the flowing rivers, rolling hillsides, and luscious agriculture are all found in Galilee. The mansions and the theater at Sepphoris, the palaces in Tiberias, they all testify that this is not some cultural backwater. Nonetheless, the darkness of this world is real, even though most do not notice it. Galilee is a region under the influence of the Gentiles with their gods, their lifestyles, 
and their worldview. Well, beloved, you do not live in Galilee, but think what it is to bring this up to our own day, to wealthy, beautiful New England. It's beautiful here. Uh, Ignorance, we live in the shadow of the world's greatest universities. Technology, we have the greatest health care available to us that anyone in the history of the world has ever enjoyed. We have food. Um, I had a friend from Poland when I was in seminary. This is before the Berlin Wall fell. And uh, it used to just overwhelm her to go to a supermarket. And beloved, this was not like Whole Foods or something. This This was Mississippi. These were not fancy supermarkets. She just couldn't understand that we had dozens of choices of what kind of bread we wanted and so on. In fact, before the Berlin Wall fell, it cost an entire month's salary to buy one book in Poland. That's not where you live. You live in a place where many of you, not all of you, but many of you own your own home, nice homes. You have money in the bank. You have educations and good jobs. And, you know, you have a world of information available on your cell phones to the Internet. If anybody in the history of the world is living in the light, surely it's us, right? No. That's not what the light is. See, think about what darkness is. Darkness is the absence of light. And if the true light is Jesus Christ, darkness is the absence of Christ. And to the degree that you think yourself sufficient, even as a Christian, you've begun to walk in darkness. Now, I will say that for 200 years in America, we always thought about darkness as other people. You know, who needs the light of the gospel? Well, early on, we need to bring it to the Indians. Well, of course we need to bring the Indians. But Americans easily think that it's the people in Chad and Mongolia and Uganda. They need the gospel. I'm doing pretty well, actually. I mean, you know, a little bit's nice. Kind of clean up my life a bit. Make me feel better. But, beloved, that root is the root to darkness. This is an essential theme for us to lay hold of. The darkness of our own world is real, even when we or those around us don't seem to notice it. Darkness is most directly the absence of light, so to be away from Jesus is to be in darkness. Let me just hammer that point home. To be away from Jesus is to be in darkness. Now that's absolutely true, of course. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Right apart from me, you're just going to stumble in darkness. By God's grace, most of you here this morning know Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You have this light in your life. But you can be lulled to sleep by the comfort, the wealth, the entertainment of our world so that you begin to live comfortable in this present darkness. To trust and follow Jesus is to walk in the light. Even if you never graduate from eighth grade, to live apart from Jesus is to stumble about in moral, spiritual, and intellectual darkness, even if you're a professor at Harvard. But I don't want you to apply this to the professor at Harvard that doesn't know Jesus. I want you to apply it to yourself. Are you seeking that Christ would be the light in your life every moment of the day because you need him to do that. All of us are tempted by the beauty, comfort, and prosperity that we enjoy to fall asleep in the light and to ignore the desperate darkness 
which remains both in our world and, yes, in our own lives, even as Christians. When grief and deep loss press the dark night of the soul upon us, we instinctively turn to the Lord and ask that he would lighten our darkness. Beloved, that is good, that is right, you ought to do that. In your grief right now, your pain right now, you ought to plead with the Lord to lighten your darkness. But don't you see that perhaps when we're enjoying life the most, when it seems to be going best, when it's easy and comfortable and good, perhaps that's when we most desperately need to ask the Lord to lighten our darkness, to remind us that we do not live by bread alone. So whether in sickness or in health, Whether in prosperity or in in want, let us seek the Lord that he would lighten our darkness, knowing that one day he will wipe away every tear from our eyes and the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, even as the waters cover the sea. Until that day, we live by faith in the Son of God and the knowledge that the true light is already shining and the darkness will never Put it out. Amen.